really what it comes down to is understanding some of the stories of the individual soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines that have sacrificed. Realize the kind of attributes they bring that only makes the whole team better. I served in uniform not because I was underprivileged, uh, rather it was because of conviction of love of country and the American way of life. If I hadn't gone through a lot of the traumatic things in Iraq, Afghanistan, just even at home, probably would not have made it through that night. No, somebody didn't need me, but somebody just took the time to care. For me, the most memorable events I've ever seen involved the United States military. No matter where they were called upon, no matter where their duties would take them, they acted swiftly, without any hesitation, or mental reservations to answer our nation's call to action. Welcome back to this episode of the Patriot Podcast. I'm Chris Obermeyer, and I have the privilege of being joined today by Evan Perparis to talk about his time in the U.S. Army Special Forces. This interview will be split up into three parts, starting with part one to walk through a timeline of Evan's military career. With that, Let's jump right in and learn about Evan's incredible story of perseverance. The guy you're about to meet uh, should probably be wearing an S on his chest, and you're going to be blown away by a story. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to introduce you to United States Army Major Evan Paparis. Uh Not only is he a soldier, he's an SF soldier. Uh, Evan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. So, uh, glad we can make the connection over the last couple of years. And, uh move this forward. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to see you again, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your hectic schedule to be with us today. So I thought to kick things off a little bit. I think it's really appropriate today being 9-11, and it's hard to believe it's been 22 years. Yeah, it's wild. Since that attack happened. thought it was appropriate for us to just kind of spend a little bit of time and talk about that and remembrance of that. So we all have vivid memories of 9-11, where we were, what we were doing, you name it. So Evan, I was just curious if you can tell me a little bit about you know, where you were during 9-11. Yeah, so during 9-11, uh, 2001, I was in college. I was in ROTC already, so I was already part of the Army, kind of, not like officially active duty, but I had already made that decision. And uh, I had grown up in New York, Long Island specifically. So I have friends and family very deeply connected to the World Trade Center. Um, so woke up for morning PT in the Army trained and I got got out of the shower and I remember getting a phone call and they were like one of my friends had called me uh, who actually has passed away since then I uh, died in April of 2007 but he had called me and was like a plane just hit the tower and I was like well like planes hit buildings all the like not all the time but it's not without precedent right like mm-hmm. small small passenger plane hit, just hit like the Empire State Building and he's like no no you need to turn on the TV now and sure enough you know we all know what the images we saw and we were basically glued to our TV the rest of the day I actually um I went to class at one point, and I was like completely distracted. It was a complete waste of time because mm-hmm. all I was thinking about was 9/11. When I came out, I asked my roommate at the time. I was like, "Yeah, the towers are really messed up, you know, because they're, I mean, they're just burning." And he's like, "No, dude, there are no towers." Hmm. So I was in class when both both towers collapsed. Uh, my godfather, uh, so the man who baptized me, John Casamatis, was in the base of the North Tower when the South Tower collapsed. Oh. He's a Port Authority police officer, and he miraculously survived. Oh, wow. I mean, his story is just phenomenal. The smoke and the things crashing down. And, uh, you know, as he was leaving, he picked someone up who was unconscious and carried them to safety. And, uh, you know, being from Long Island, 
I know, I mean, everyone I know knows somebody that was affected, right? Mm -hmm. So my godfather's um, brother-in-law uh, died in the towers. Uh, one of my good friends from high school, her, someone on her street, was a firefighter, died in the towers. Uh, my dad had worked in the World Trade Center prior, but was not working there that day. Uh, he moved offices a couple years before. My other best friend, uh, his dad was in the towers, but on a lower level and got out. Right, so it was, it was very personal, even though like I, you know, just a 20 or a 19 year old kid at the time, or about. Wow, yeah. it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. You know, I appreciate you sharing that. And it's, <clears throat> it's interesting that 22 years later, it, it's still not any easier to talk about. No, no. And the, uh, you know, a couple years ago, I, I shared the images of my social media of like, you know, the people jumping from the towers and it's just like, I don't know, it just hits you with like a dose of reality. And I still get, if I like watch a documentary, it's still, yeah, it still feels very emotional. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I'm, I have connections there, but I'm, I wasn't, I wasn't physically on the ground, right? Right. My, my godfather was and, you know, people I know that were, but yeah, defining moment in, American history, defining moment in I think everyone's life. Everyone's like we were saying. Everyone's got that story of like where you were, sure, and kind of what you're what you're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, at that stage, I remember that day because I was on active duty, and I had no inclination of how that would change my life mm. years later, my family's life, and the result because of that, right? Yeah, same. And that trickle down effect, right? You know, who would have thought? And I think the, the greatest thing that came out of it was we had a true sense of unity and patriotism as a country. And each and every one of us who was wearing that uniform in one way, shape, or form was motivated and wanted to, to get out there and try to help, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just unbelievable to think of the trickle-down effect and then, you know, where we are today. Yeah, you could, I mean, you could feel the patriotism walking around, right? Yeah. So I was an ROTC, so I, I hadn't done anything really for the Army at that point besides wear a uniform. And people would, like, people would just be super nice to us and say thank you for your service and, like, buy us, like, buy us coffee or whatever. It was, it, was, it was pretty crazy. Absolutely. And, yeah, you could just feel, you could really feel the patriotism. It yeah. Was, um, obviously a terrible event, uh, but um, had some nice things came out of it uh, mm -hmm. immediately after. Now. Sure. Yeah, and, and I, w I would assume, you know, that, that even being in ROTC, in the Cadet Corps, you know, that really gives you a sense of purpose. You know, I, I also, I was a cadre member for ROTC. Oh, nice. And for myself, that was probably one of the most rewarding assignments because I was helping the men and women who were going to be the future of our military. And I can only assume, you know, during that moment, you know, with you being in the cadets and the Cadet Corps, et cetera, that it just gave you a sense of purpose, right? Because as you know, with ROTC, it's kind of the best of both worlds, right? Be the college student, yep. and yet you have your commitment to whatever respective branch. So to me, it's a win-win. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I really appreciate you, you sharing that story about your family members and, and <clears throat> people you knew. Um, yeah, it means a lot. Yeah. So I think probably a good time to transition. Let's talk about you. I mean, let's face it. You're the reason why we're doing this right now. So, you know, I would like to tell our audience a little bit about yourself. You spoke briefly a little bit about where's home, you know, talk about your home, family, you know, maybe even get to a high level, some hobbies of interest yeah. that you have. And we'll dive more into those later on in the yeah. podcast. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Garden City South, Long Island, New York. Uh, suburbs, pretty, 
normal, you know, basic childhood. I was always like the nerdy kid. So I was not the athlete. The, the athlete was my sister. I was definitely not me. Um, so I liked, uh, my primary activity growing up was Boy Scouts. Yeah, I liked reading books. I liked video games. Uh, I played a little bit of sports on the side, but I was never good. Like I ran in a high school cross country team. I'd say I was definitely bottom third, if not one of the worst. I think I scored points for the team once because everyone else was sick. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I scored points of the team. I'm, I'm here, guys. So that was um, most of the stuff I did in high school was Boy Scouts. And then I was actually in drama and musicals. So not, not the normal, um, what you expect for someone to go into the military. But it, it was the community that I really liked. I really, the friends I had in the drama and musicals was, was just a lot of fun. Uh-huh. And that's kind of why I went that route. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then I applied to college. I was always a really good student. Um, so I applied to Johns Hopkins University early decision, mm-hmm. got accepted there. And uh, from my influence from the Boy Scouts, I knew I wanted to do something in the military. And I thought it was going to be something like military intelligence or medical service corps, <laughs> something that was, you know, safe, quote unquote, and, uh, you know, use my intelligence more to, as a more advantageous position. And uh, once I got to college, I ended up hanging out with a group of guys, some of the who we were talking a little bit about earlier. And one of them was like, well, if you're going to join the military, you should do something you can't do in the civilian world. And, uh, you know, there's some points to that. And uh, with the wars going on, and um, I kind of direct, kind of refocus towards combat arms. And uh, it's not that you necessarily want to go to war, but if you're training and preparing for war all day, it's like being on a sports team. It's like practicing for football all the time and never getting to play a game. Yeah. And if people are playing a game, like, you want in on the game. Right. Right. So that's kind of the mindset we had going through college and, you know, prepared. And uh, with, with 9-11, we actually thought we were going to miss the war, which in hindsight is a ridiculous <laughs> statement. Right. right? Like 20 right. years, 20 years <laughs> right. later, it was still going on. But at the time, yeah. it was like, no, we're going to miss it all. We got to, like, you know, people were like, should I drop out of college and, like, go, go join the military? Sure. It's like, well, I think I'll be more valuable if I finish college and then come out with a degree and some competent skills. And yeah. then be a leader in the military. So sure. It's kind of the path of went Sure. Through. Yeah, absolutely. And you make a good point there about, you know, dropping out of college. People that were civilians in multiple professions, right, high-level roles, said, to heck with it. I want to go serve my country. Yeah. And we saw recruitment skyrocket. Yes. Because yeah. everybody wanted to get in there. So I'm going to double back your sister. So is she older? Older, four years older. Okay. Yeah. So she's the athlete of the family. She is. <laughs> Yeah. Or was, I guess. Was. was. Yeah. So did she rub that in your face? Any sibling rivalry there or competition? <laughs> we were pretty well behaved. We were pretty, we got along with each other pretty well. Um, yeah. You know, she's the older sister, so she always picked on me a little bit. But it was it was mostly out of love. Yeah. And her, her room was the one, I remember going to her room and there would be like medals all over the wall. She did triple jump and she, oh, was, wow. she was very good. I think she was like all state or something. But, wow. Um, so she was, she was the athlete and I was the smart one. And, uh, <laughs> Good ballots. Now, so you spoke about drama. So, did you did you hold any key roles in any plays or anything? So my first my first uh, musical was the Wizard of Oz. I was the coroner Munchkin. I had a solo. <laughs> right. I'm not going to sing it right now. Uh, but I, I had a, I had a small solo. Um, and I, the reason I tried out was because my band director was like, if you try out, because they had so few males try out. Sure. Like if you try out, we will guarantee you a role. And I was like. I'll take a guaranteed spot. So that's how it, and then I, again, I, I, I like the community. Um, and then I was the lead for a couple of, what was the, 
I played. I actually played the devil once in uh, what was the name of that one? Defective Detective? No, it might have been the Defective Detective. And then in uh, my senior year, I was the oldest boy from The Sound of Music, Friedrich. Huh. Which was funny because my best friend, uh, the one we, whose, whose dad was in the towers who made it out, was my dad. So like we're the same age, but he's a lot taller. I'm, I'm short. I'm like five six. And uh, he was playing my dad, and then all the other little kids were like two to two to five years younger than me. Oh wow! Uh, I'm short, so. <laughs> so I had a I had a high G note in that, which I will oh. also not sing. Now. I have not sang since <laughs> I was in the play. Uh, but that was like my claim to fame when I was a senior. Yeah. Oh, we might have to come back to that later. Yeah, there's there's VHS copies of it. I've got some. You can't see them. That's awesome. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. That's funny. Yeah. So we'll get back to ROTC. So ROTC, you're at John Hopkins. You did four years there, prestigious university, you know. So as you're getting ready, you know, to come out of an Air Force called a POC, you're getting ready to graduate. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, assignment opportunities. Did you already have your MOS? your occupation going into it, if you can just give us a little background yeah. on that. So you apply for your MOS uh, essentially at the end of, uh, or start of senior year around then. And I had put infantry as number one, artillery as two, I think armor as three, so basically combat arms, and then you list all the way down to whatever, 16, 20, whatever many there are. Um, I ended up getting my number two choice, field artillery, not my number one choice, which is fine. It actually was more beneficial in the long run. I just couldn't see it at the time. The assignment opportunities, uh, again, there's a couple of like, let's say famous army units, right? Like the 101st, the 82nd. Sure. So there's some that are known for like when, there's, when stuff's about to go down, this is who we send in. So that's kind of where we, a lot of people were trying to go to, my peers. Okay. Um, so I, I applied to, for 101st and that's what I got. Okay. Um, so that, that's where my first two deployments were with the 101st. So after you graduated from John, John Hopkins, how long, how long after that was it until you, you responded or reported to the 101st? So I ended up requesting the, like a summer break to take okay. the summer off. Um, and then I basically in September, I showed, well, I showed up to the officer basic course. You do six months of that. Okay. Then you go to Ranger. I went to Ranger School. It's elective choice. Uh, if you're not familiar with Ranger School, two-month-long sleep and food-deprived suffer fest. Essentially, they rotate who's in charge. And they say you get an average of four hours of sleep a night, which is not really accurate. Sometimes it's six when you're in the barracks, and then when you're in the field, it's like 30 minutes to two hours broken into 30-minute segments throughout the night. And you basically do practice missions all throughout Georgia and Florida. Three phases. It's supposed to be two months if you pass everything first time. If you do not pass everything first time, you get the choice to recycle. And you can stay there almost as long as you want. So I, instead of doing two months, I was there six months. Oh, which was awful, <laughs> worst experience of my entire, oh yeah, one of the worst experiences of my entire life. It was awful. You're just miserable the entire time. Sure. Because you're hungry, you're tired. I mean, I'm not a big guy. I lost about 20 pounds there, mm. right? There's not much, you, you're, taking, you're taking muscle at that point. Um, I've watched people hallucinate. I've hallucinated in broad daylight there. Um, I've watched people walk into trees. I've watched the guy fall asleep standing up. Right? And normally your knees buckle and you wake up. That's normal. I think a lot of people in the military have done that. Sure, formation. Yeah, yeah. Yep. What's not normal is watching a guy fall asleep and then face plant into rocks. Oh. And like good soldiers, we all laughed at him. 
right? And he's like, real funny, guys. That was real funny. So he stands back up. And he does it again 10 minutes later. Oh, no. Right into the rocks, right? That's how tired you are at Ranger School. Wow. Um, but, yeah, it's a leadership school. They rotate who's in charge. And whenever someone new's in charge, they've got a lot of energy that we call leadership energy. And the, everyone else is like petulant children. You know, they're just being very difficult to work with because you're tired. Sure. You know, like, hey, move, move a tree over so you can pull security. And they're like, got to move a tree? It's ridiculous. You know, he's like dragging his rucksack. Like, Calm down. So it teaches you, doesn't teach you good habits, but it teaches you that you can go and accomplish the mission pretty much regardless of the situation. And regardless of how poor your nutrition is and how little sleep you have, you can still accomplish the mission. It may not look pretty and it may not be optimal, but you can get there. Sure. So I'm going to make an assumption since you spent a little bit more time there, yeah. the instructor's Maybe knew you by name. Did you have so You rotate through. So after you fail in one company, you rotate through. Oh, okay. So you get a so new So don't batch. worry. I checked out all three companies. <laughs> They're all meeting the standard. They're all doing great. Oh, that's yeah. funny. That's awesome. So, <laughs> so you went through officer basic course. Yep. Then you went to field artillery, right? Yep. So the officer basic course is the field artillery. Oh, is the field yeah. artillery portion. And then I went to ranger school, and then, then I showed up school. to my unit. Yep. And they were like... Welcome to the unit. Go on leave. We're deploying in two weeks. And I was like, okay. So didn't get an apartment and then uh, went right to Iraq. So let's talk about that. So, so with that, so where was the first duty assignment at? Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Fort Campbell. Yep. Pretty famous place. A lot of our audience probably doesn't really know how prestigious that assignment is. Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the Night Stalkers and. Fort Campbell, very. Uh, the units there are very good, right? So you have the Night Stalkers, which is a Special Operations Aviation Regiment. If uh, you're familiar with the Black Hawk Down incident, that's, those are the pilots there. If you're familiar with, uh, they get, were they the ones on the Bin Laden raid too? They were. They were, yeah. They, were, they did fly those Black yep. Hawks, yeah. So basically anytime Special Operations do a high-risk mission, it's going to be the Night Stalkers flying those helicopters. So they're based out of Fort Campbell. Fifth Special Forces Group is based out of Fort Campbell. Again, we're talking September 11th. The first Special Forces teams in, on the ground in Afghanistan after September 11th were 5th Special Forces teams. Um, the stat, there's a statue called the Horse Soldier Monument in front of the current Trade Center. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a 5th Special Forces team. It's image taken from a 5th Special Forces team uh, picture slash inspiration. The movie 12 Strong, again, that's 5th Special Forces group. Um, they're the ones who carried... All the, all the groups helped out, but they're the ones who carried the majority of the... Uh, load for the for the war on terror because every special forces group is regionally aligned and fifth special force group is aligned to the Middle East mm -hmm. So all the guys there speak a Middle Eastern language and that's where they spend the majority of their deployments And then the 101st again if you've seen the movie Band of Brothers or the series Band of Brothers That is the 101st so you know invasion of D-Day They got they have a very rich history been they were involved in Vietnam the specifically the unit I was in uh, 187 infantry regiment uh, was if you, again if you've seen the movie Hamburger Hill, that's uh, the Rakasan. So that's uh, they've got a lot of history and just basically er every major conflict between World War II and now they're involved in. Sure, and I find it ironic this comes up in conversation. But when you talk about the Fifth Special Forces Group, well, Mark Newt, who was commander, was yep. a K-State grad. Yeah, and he lives locally. He lives like in I think so, Leavenworth yeah. area. Yeah. Yeah. So. What a small world. It is. Yeah. So that's awesome. So you're there at Fort Campbell. So you're in artillery, and I'm going to guess, just by knowing you, that you probably had a drive and some ambitions like, hey, I'm ready to take things to the next level. So how long were you in 
artillery, and then what got you thinking about maybe doing something different? Yeah, so um, went on the deployment, basically like when I showed up uh, to Samar, Iraq, and um, while I was there, since as an artillery guy, there wasn't much artillery being shot because this is 05, 06 time frame, so it's counterinsurgency mostly. So my company commander uh, at the time, a man named Captain Brennan, uh, comes up to me and he's like, Evan, you're pretty smart, right? And I was like, I don't know, I guess so. And he's like, yeah, you went to Hoppinger again. He's like, here's a stack of Intel reports. Literally handed me a stack like this big of Intel reports. And he's like, figure out what's going on in the city. And uh, I'm like, you know, I'm not an Intel officer, right? And he's like, yeah, you'll figure it out though. Sure enough, I did, right? So like, I literally had a wall of the, our command post that was a giant wire diagram connecting all like the uh, terrorist leaders. And I started building target packets and started uh, making an HVT list, high value target list. And we just started playing called Whack-A-Mole, right? We just start targeting people and capturing or killing them, and then you just move on to the next one. And so we were doing that at the company level, which was, let's say, not unheard of, but it was a little unusual for a conventional unit. Mm -hmm. And I saw that and the, the experience I had there and how, I, how effective we thought I thought we were and being able to do something and see the positive result right after made me want to go into special forces because I saw that as an opportunity to do more of the stuff I was doing and had already, uh, we were pretty good at it. Sure. Um, yeah, no, that's great. So for a lot of people probably not familiar with, you know, special forces and what they do, how they do it, roles, et cetera. But I think it would be nice to start at the beginning. It's like, yeah. how do you even get selected? What's the application yeah. process? Talk a little bit about selection. So you have to apply uh, as an officer. You have to do a couple of years in the conventional army before you can apply. Enlisted, you usually have to do a couple of years as well. Occasionally, they turn on a program called the 18 X-ray program, where you can come right on off the streets. There's values and drawbacks to both of those. Uh, being in the military for a little while first allows you to see how the military works. Allows you to get a secondary job, essentially a secondary skill set that you bring in. Uh, being able to pull people in off the street is also valuable, though, mm. because. A lot of those guys are just very, very motivated. They have not been jaded right. by some experiences in the Army, and they come up, come in fired up. Some of them are civilians who have other great jobs, so they bring those skills in. So there's, it works if there's a good mix. If you go all in one direction, I think it doesn't work as well. Sure. But you apply, essentially it's paperwork and it's physical to apply. Uh, they look at you, and they try to look at the whole person. So we don't want someone who's just smart or just someone who's just strong or just has good endurance. We want you kind of well-rounded, and we want you to be flexible, adaptable, and then the big one is being able to work in a team, right? Because if you can't work in a team, when we go on Special Forces missions, we're in a full team, which is 12 dudes, or a split team, which is six dudes, and we are operating in a small group. And you need to know that the guy to your left and right is going to have your back, and he, you need to know that he is competent in whatever he is specifically trained for. So you apply via paperwork, you get selected, you get a selection date, and then you go to a course that is tryouts, it's three weeks long. There's a documentary called Two Weeks in Hell, because at the time it was two weeks when they filmed it, that um, I'm not in the documentary, <laughs> but my friends are, which is kind of funny. I went to selection, went on a 14-month deployment, came back and then started the training pipeline. All the guys I entered the training pipeline with were the guys in the documentary. Oh, so when wow. I watch it, we, ha we have a good time. We laugh because we know I know all those dudes. Oh, and, uh, that's great. Some of them look... Some of them do not look good on, t on TV. And you're like, oh, man, like, you're a good dude, though. But they kind of, they kind of did you a little wrong. But, um, yeah, so uh, the selection process is three weeks. It is physically and emotionally demanding. The cadre are very professional. 
they don't give you a lot of feedback. So if you're the type of guy who needs to know if you're doing good or poorly, you just don't get it. They just, hmm. they're like, okay, next, next event is this time. Boop. And you're like, did I do good? Did I do bad? Wow. So it's, it's a lot of the unknown. Uh, the schedule is fluctuates. It never is never the same. Uh, you spend a lot of time just kind of sitting around waiting and you're not allowed to sleep. And then they'll, um, they'll put instructions up on a board or I think they do it digitally now. And then you follow the instructions. You'll do unknown distance runs, unknown distance ruck marches. You'll do land navigation. So you spend a lot of time underneath your rucksack. Uh, you'll do something called team week, which essentially they give you a bunch of like pipes and sandbags and rope and you have to like build a contraption and then drag it or carry it through the woods while also doing some land navigation. So it's, it, it's rough. Physi physically, it is way harder than ranger school. Oh, right? and I was gonna ask that. Yeah, like the, the weights you carry at selection are insane. If I hadn't physically done it, I would assume it is, that is impossible. You know, like you have your 50 pound backpack, your 10 pound rifle, your water, so it's another 10 pounds, and then you're, you're carrying this several hundred pound duffel bag filled with sand and pipes. Right, and then for miles on sand, <laughs> it's preposterous. So I, I mentioned I lost 20 pounds in range school, which is two months course, and that is slowly just being, just constantly using more energy than you're taking in. Mm -hmm. I lost about the same weight at selection in 10 days. Wow. Just like, I mean, just, you're just moving all the time. It was, uh, uh, but the one thing I'll say is mentally for me, it was easier because mentally, I had spent six months in ranger school, not the optimal solution. Um, but I, I was like, well, if I can do six months there, I can do anything for three weeks. Like literally, any, you can't, sure. and you can't stop the clock. So mentally, I had a lot easier time there. And uh, you pass the, so we had about 300 people start, about 200 people made it to the end. So 100 people quit um, that are, again, they screen people. We had 300 start, about 200 made it to the end. And then out of those 200, 120 or so got selected. Hmm. And then they, had, they have the opportunity to start the SF training pipeline. And I'd say about, uh, again, just these are old data and just based off my personal experience, about, about two-thirds of those people make it through. And most of the people that don't make it through, it's a lot of, I call it self, it's usually discipline problems. Okay. They get a DUI, they, you know, they, they, they do something stupid and they get in trouble. Sure. Right, because the, the Venn diagram of, guy who wants to join special forces and go into a foreign country to kill people and overthrow governments and the guy who is like also a high risk taker those venn diagrams overlap a lot yeah so it's hard to get the good qualities without pulling in some of the bad qualities that makes sense yeah that makes sense and i think going back to the mental aspect <clears throat> i would speculate that that's a bigger part of it than the physical right because if 100%. the if the brain says you can't you won't and I can remember even simple things through workups for deployments. And you just dial it in. Like my philosophy was, like, okay, I'm going to make it to lunch. That's my goal. Yep. I'm going to get to lunch. Okay, then I'm going to get to dinner. And then we're going to get to breakfast, right? And just keep breaking it down into small segments. And I thought, you know, that helped out tremendously. And I can only imagine going through ranger school and selection. It's probably you got to really chunk it down once again. Just take one hurdle at a time to get through it. Yep, no, you're spot on. I, I call it, uh, when I write about it in, in my endurance books, I call it chunking, right? So you just take something in manage, a manageable chunk, whatever you can handle, whether that it's a full day or maybe it's just a part of a day, like you said, and you focus on doing that to the best of your ability, and then once that's done, you focus on the next section. Because if you look at the whole task as a whole, it's going to be overwhelming. Sure. And, I mean, people do it, they just don't realize they're doing it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you go, if you're in college, you don't go, 
All right, day one of college, I have 150 papers to write and 70 <laughs> finals to take. Like, no one does that. Right. It's insane. It'll right. crush you. So you focus on the next test, the next assignment, and you chip away at it. And uh, as we talk, we'll talk about, you know, consistency and just doing a little bit of work every day. Whatever your goal is, you know, in five years, you'll be a lot closer to your goal than you were if you tried to look at it all at once. Absolutely. I, I like to call that the compound effect. <clears throat> if you make micromental changes each and every day, no matter what, then you're going to be further along at whatever you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. That's awesome. So you get into it. You're awarded your beret. What's next? So uh, I'm going to back up real quick. So special operations, big, broad umbrella term. Special forces is a subset of special operations. Under special operations, you have the SEALs who focus on water. Special forces, you got the Night Stalkers. Mm -hmm. You have the Ranger Regiment. Uh, what makes special forces unique is we do unconventional warfare, which is activities to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow a foreign government occupying power through auxiliary underground or guerrilla force. Textbook definition. Nailed it. Simple explanation is example. Again, 9-11 happens. Fifth group teams linked up with the Northern Alliance, and they use them as a proxy force to overthrow the Taliban. That's the uh, like history example. My favorite example is uh, the Rebel Alliance links up with the Ewoks and use them to overthrow the Empire <laughs> in Return of the Jedi. There you go. Um, what makes us unique since some of the other special operations unit is one is focusing on that capability, and part of that capability is we have language training. So part of my Q course, my special forces qualification course, I did six months where I focused on Persian Farsi, which is what they speak in Iran. It's written in Arabic script, right to left. And uh, you're not fluent, but you've got enough to make friends. So if I go into a country where they speak Farsi, which Iran, Afghanistan does Dari, which is very similar, mm -hmm. and I can just build, just show I'm trying a little bit, some random white dude in the middle of their country who's a foreigner, you build a lot of rapport very quickly. Um, so graduated Q course, you get the green hat, the green beret there. And I went to 5th Special Forces Group, uh, back to Fort Campbell, interestingly enough, and, uh, you know, start doing Special Forces-related missions. So I did a, ended up doing a deployment to Kuwait, a deployment to Qatar, an deployment to Lebanon, a deployment to Iraq. There we go. I almost missed one. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's, uh, the, the average age is typically higher. As opposed to, like, a regular infantry unit, the average mm -hmm. age will be, like, closer to the low 20s. Mm -hmm. Average age for Special Forces, closer to 30s. Uh, most of them are married. Uh, some of them are on their second marriages, right, because you spend a lot of time away, and mm -hmm. uh, you need a strong uh, spouse to be able to handle uh, that situation. And they're just a lot more independent and a lot more uh, professional and experienced. So it's a great community to be in. So I just, yeah. Yes. Don't, I've, never, I've never met someone who was in Special Forces who was like, no, that wasn't the right decision. That was a... I should have I should have done something else. Right, <clears throat> and it's interesting when you describe who's a part of that community. When you start talking about brains and brawn and a mixture of both, et cetera. You know, I, I work with some of the tenth Special Forces guys in one of my deployments in Afghanistan, mm. and they epitomize that. And it was just really neat to have an opportunity to to see what they do, how they do it, what capabilities they bring to the fight, um, levels of creativity. Um, yes. Yeah. Depending on what the circumstance or the environment is, um, so I, I really love what their capabilities are and how they can deliver. Yeah, we, creativity is a great one. So when we do mission planning, we'll break. I'll take my 12-man team and break them into three groups, and I'll have them each focus on a different infiltration and exfiltration method, 
and a different way to attack the target. So it'll be like, you group, we're going to infiltration by vehicles, and then hit the target from the north. Your group's going to do air infiltration, hit the target from the south, and your group, just do whatever you want. And everyone comes up with a different plan, and then they brief the leadership, and then they'll pick and choose parts of the plan. So it was like, all right, we're going to come in via helicopters, leave by stealing cars, right, after hitting the target from the east. Whatever, right? So it's usually a mix of the three plans. But it's, you end up uh, getting a lot of buy-in from your team slash community slash if your business, if you, if you end up having them do, like, focus on different aspects. And then you, I feel like you get more creativity out of the group. I agree. And I think, too, it provides an opportunity for empowerment. Yeah. And you take ownership, right? Yes. Because whoever's responsible for that, now I have some skin in the game. So I want to make sure what I'm bringing to the table is right. Correct. For the betterment of the entire group. Yeah, and sometimes they'll identify, you know, threats that maybe other people hadn't considered in their plans. So um, just a really group of, and, and they, don't, they don't understand the word, like, I can't, right? Mm -hmm. Those words, like, it's not, it's just not part of their lexicon. So you'll, I didn't realize it, but spending that much time around those types of people, it just, like, fundamentally changes you. And it happens so slowly, you don't even realize, you know, you fast forward a couple of years, and you're like, does not everyone think like this? People are like, no, no one thinks like that. And you're like, hmm, interesting. You know, like we just, you're not allowed to quit anything, right? It's just, right. It's just not, it's, it's not acceptable. You will be blackballed here, you know? So it's just like, there's no quit in there. Right, yeah. right, absolutely. And I think, too, it'd be interesting to dive in a little bit. So maybe highlight and talk a little bit about some of the courses that you have to take once you get into the pipeline. Yeah. So the, the pipeline, you get, a, I mentioned, six months of language course. Um, depending on what language, sometimes it's only four months. But you, you focus on a language, and a lot of it's just basic speaking capability. There's two months of something called small unit tactics, which is like ranger school, but with more food and more sleep. So you basically do a lot of practice missions, and uh, you get to like do the mission, and then you get to like reset and sleep a little bit before you do the next mission. So it's much more logical and a better, better <laughs> operating procedure. So that's the tactical portion. That's two months, and there's some close quarters battles, room clearing. You go into houses, stuff like that. We have a one-month course called SEER, Survival, Escape, Resistance, and Invasion, where they, I, I call the classroom portion Advanced Boy Scouts, because they take all the Boy Scouts and like cram it into like four days. It was really good. That's a I, lovely Spokane, if I remember correctly, correct? Uh, there's a couple different ones. Okay. The one we went to is in uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of that course, you get captured, as, and they treat you like a prisoner of war. Do not recommend that. <laughs> That was not fun. <laughs> but again, you learn a lot about yourself. Right. Uh, you learn a lot about like, what the enemy might do to you if you get captured. And then you're like, I should not get captured. This is a bad idea. <laughs> and then the, the worst part about going through that course is from that point forward, anytime you do a mission, our cadre would always be like, don't get captured, guys. And I'm like, don't send me back there. <laughs> like, and they're, they're like, we'll send you right back to the, the seer compound. I was like, I don't want to do that. Um, you do a three-month course for your, your specialty. Everyone's got a different specialty on the team. It makes every, it makes, and there's duplicates on each team. So you can operate as a 12-man or a six-man team. Maybe dive into that, some of the yeah. different roles. So we've got a, uh, we got a weapons guy. He essentially can disassemble and use foreign weapons. Uh, and then he's like got armor level knowledge on the weapons. We've got a communications guy. Uh, just, you know, high frequency, low frequency, all, all types, clandestine radio, all sorts of radios, right? Um, we've got a engineer who not only builds stuff, but blows stuff up. We've got a medic. The medic course is longer than three months. The medic course is it's like a full year. And they do some amazing stuff. I mean, our medics can 
give an IV to someone under night vision in the back of a moving truck, right? Like, just insane. During their course, they actually go to, like, a major city, Chicago, New York, uh, with high crime and uh, trauma wounds, mm-hmm. and they will work as an EMT and, and treat people. So, they, so the first time they're treating a bullet wound is not in a battlefield. It's in America, yeah. right? So they've, they get some really good training. They're angels. Right. I love them. The other MOSs you can get at a later point. So there's, we have, like, an intel specialist MOS. As an officer, you get the very unexciting MOS of just officer, which is basically planning. <laughs> Which sounds so lame, uh, but you need, it, you need it as part of the team. So as an officer, my specialty is like planning. So we, do, we did a lot of planning in our three-month thing. And then the final exercise, it's a month long. It's called Robin Sage. You take your 12-man team and you infiltrate uh, North Carolina um, and you overthrow their government, right? So there's a lot of role players, and it is pretty crazy because you're not on a military base. You're in the backwoods. And, and like the, the community's in on it, the police are in on it, everyone's in on it, right? So people will come up to you and they give you like the code word that lets you know that you're in the scenario and you're not, they're not actually the police stopping you. And uh, you get some really good experiences there and you learn lessons that, you know, that are built from uh, Vietnam and from other uh, special operations missions uh, that we had to use in Iraq and Afghanistan about interacting with a foreign uh, partner force. So that's the culmination. And then once you get to a special forces team, what's really cool, so the Army's got a lot of courses, right? Like I, for those of you watching on video, like I got a bunch of badges here, and people are always like, ooh, badges. <laughs> this is the lamest schools I've been to in the military, unfortunately, uh, for most people. The best courses, I don't, you don't get badges for you. You don't get patches. Sometimes you get a certificate, sometimes you get a handshake. But essentially, what's cool about special operations, if you can justify how it relates to your mission set, and we have funding, we will approve it, and you can go to that course. So you can get civilian certifications, and you can get, a, you know, we did like a long-range marksmanship course. We did a body language reading course that's specifically for the police. Um, we, we sent guys to lock-picking schools. We sent guys to anything you want. You want to learn how to fly a small plane because you think you're going to do that on the next mission set? We'll approve it, right? So it's just like, yeah, you just got ju- to justify it. There's a lot of really cool opportunities, and you get a lot of really cool skills. Um, if the mission sets line up. Sure. And I, I smirk, I think it's interesting to budget, right? When you look at special ops in different communities like that, the pockets are pretty deep. Yeah. I can remember a time in the Air Force where I had to almost go steal a ream of paper that we needed because <laughs> <laughs> we're saying that we were tapped out for funding. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice. It had to be nice to be on the other side. It is. To be able to dive in and learn some new skills and you know, yeah. so we could you, you're not fighting over ammo and you know like usually you have the opposite problem you have too much ammo at the end of the year and like go to the range every day this week and you're like okay <laughs> so you know oh that's awesome no thanks for providing that you know great overview you know about the different roles and what it entails what an incredible story this completes part one of our three-part interview with evan in part two we'll take a deeper dive into evan's military transition into family life including how his final six-month deployment, when his daughter was only six months old, changed everything. It's an all-too-familiar, gut-wrenching story of what military families have to navigate. But nothing can prepare you for coming home to your now 12-month-old daughter who refuses to let you hold her. You don't want to miss this one. Thank you for joining us today on the Patriot Podcast. Have a great day.